Hey, good morning, faith family. I want to say hello to our faith family gathered in Lakeville and our faith family gathered in Venue. Invite all of you, if you would, to turning your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Who's ready for a new series? Well, you're getting one whether you're ready or not. So uh, here we go. Uh, we're starting a new series today. It's going to take us to summer. Uh, we're, we're, we've called it Peculiar, and what we're going to be talking about in the next several weeks is the fact that, I don't know if you know this or not, but Christians are kind of weird. Uh, we, we are a different people. We're, we're set apart. We're called to be peculiar. We think differently about the world. Uh, we, we view life through a different lens. And so part of this series is to, one, encourage you to be who God has called you to be, but it's also, for some of you, maybe you're just kind of checking church out, you're just kind of exploring Christianity, and, and this series will just help you know why Christians are the way they are. As we look at, the Apostle Peter writes this letter all about being peculiar, about being God's called out people in the world. And so we're going to look at that the next several weeks. Uh, we're going to start this morning with chapter one, asking you if you're able to stand to please do so as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to try to get through 12 verses this morning. There's a lot here, uh, but I'm just going to read down through verse 9 uh, for our scripture reading. Peter is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What a great word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the joy of being here this morning to worship you. You have given us words of life. You have spoken to us, and we pray, God, that we would hear you this morning. Holy Spirit, come and lead us. Uh, give us hope. Give us uh, joy. Uh, help us see what makes us a peculiar people. And Lord, I pray for those that are here today uh, that do not have the hope of the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ, that today would be that day where they find a living hope. And we ask it all in Jesus' powerful name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I have always been fascinated with the game of chess, but I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not very good. Right? There, there are two very important characteristics that you have to have to be good at chess. Uh, the first is intelligence, and the second is patience. 
So I'm ruled out on both accounts, all right? I, I'm, I'm more of like a checkers at Cracker Barrel kind of guy, all right? That's, that's kind of more my, my pace. But just because I'm not good at chess doesn't mean I'm not fascinated by it, because I am. I'm fascinated by the game, and I'm fascinated particularly by people who are really good at it. Uh, particularly those people, you know what I'm talking about, who have the ability to see several moves ahead, They can anticipate that. That's probably why I was very captivated with the story about a young man by the name of Magnus Carlsen. Uh, Magnus here, who's a Norwegian, by the way, so you should be interested in that. Um, By (laughs) by age 13, uh, he was the grandmaster of chess. This is crazy. He's 13 years old, and he's competing against the best chess players in the world. By age 19, he is the number one ranked chess player in the world, making him the youngest ever to hold that ranking. It's why he got the nickname, the Mozart of chess, because his ability is so amazing. In fact, he's so good at chess. Let me give you just an example of how good he is. Booty Getra. Just look at what he's doing. Competing against 10 players simultaneously. That in itself is not extraordinary. But Magnus cannot see the boards. He's facing the other way. So he has to keep track of the positions of 320 pieces blind. And the number of possible moves? Infinite. Magnus comes out on top. Right, now that's just insane, all right? I can't even beat hardly my six-year-old daughter, much less ten people with my back turned, all right? But, you know, as amazing as he is, there's actually something that even Magnus struggles with. There's something, even in chess, that he finds difficult. You see, he was interviewed by Time magazine, And what he said was fascinating. He said, even though I have the ability to see several moves ahead, the hardest thing for me in chess is this. Listen, envisioning what will be at the end of those calculations. In other words, even though I can think a couple of moves ahead, what's difficult for me is to see what the final result will be. It's one thing to make a couple moves or to see a few moves in advance, but keeping the final outcome in clear view is very difficult. But you know what? That's not just true for Magnus, is it? That's true for all of us. That's not just true in the game of chess, that's also true in real life. You see, most of us are next move kind of people. It's all about the next email, the next phone call, the next meeting, the next deadline. What am I going to do next week? The relationship has ended. What's my next move? The bill has come in the mail. How am I going to pay that? What's my next move? Maybe you're thinking about next week, next month. Some of you are so detailed, you've thought out the next three years or the next five years, but listen, everybody right here. Very few people live with a clear view of what our final outcome will be. And the reason why I know that's true is because that's why some of you today are worried. 
It's why some of you are twisted like a pretzel. It's why you're stressed out. It's why you've lost perspective because you've become so consumed just in the next move that you've lost sight of final outcome. God does not want His people to only be next move people. He wants us to live with a certainty of what our outcome is. That's why all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament, God is constantly reminding His people about their future. And that is exactly how the Apostle Peter starts this letter. And why would he do that? Why would he start with final outcome rather than next move? It's because the people that Peter's writing to are facing serious persecution. They are at least on one hand marginalized, if not on the other being martyred. Uh, they are exclusive. That is, these Christians believe not in all the other gods or multiple ways. They believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. People look at them as being strange because of some of the practices they have. They take, for instance, the Lord's Supper. People thought that was like cannibalism. They didn't understand why they would practice baptism. In fact, Christians were so strange in the eyes of the world in Peter's day that it made them a target of persecution. Uh, in 64 AD, which is around the time when this uh, book was written, uh, there's a great massive fire in Rome. It devastates most of the city, and uh, everybody blames Nero, who is the emperor at the time, and being the good politician that he is, generally speaking, he blames somebody else. And who is the easiest target to blame? What's the people who don't worship Roman gods? And so the bullseye is put on the back of Christians, and listen to what Tacitus, a Roman historian, wrote, quote, besides being put to death, they were made to serve as objects of amusement. They, that is Christians, were clothed in the hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified, others set on fire to illuminate the night. That's who Peter's writing to. And this, this is so incredible. The implications of this are enormous. Lakeville venue, everybody right here. When Peter starts this letter, writing to people in that situation, he doesn't start with a plan. He starts with a perspective. He doesn't give them, well, here's what you need to do tomorrow, and here's how you'll survive next week. No, he gives them a certainty of their final outcome. Because perspective is what makes them peculiar. Look at it in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, watch, elect exiles of the dispersion. He calls them exiles. He does this again in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Look at it. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What is Peter doing? He is reminding these Christians in the midst of their trials of their identity. He wants them to know their home. He's reminding them of where their home really is. Uh, this is language, by the way, that's used in the Old Testament to refer to Israel. Israel in the Old Testament was a nation that was called out 
from all the other nations to be a peculiar people, a holy nation set apart. Peter takes that language and now applies that to believers, to the church, as to say, you too are called out. You too live in the world, but you are not of this world. You have a different home. You're a stranger. You're peculiar. You're in exile. This is a very, very common theme in the New Testament. Let me give you just a couple examples. Paul uses this in Philippians 3 verse 20. But our citizenship is in what? Heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 13 verse 14. For here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. One more. Uh, Apostle John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, what makes Christians peculiar is that our home is not ultimately here. Y'all with me this morning? Our home is not ultimately here. And this means that we're out of step with the culture. At least we should be. It means we, we march to a different beat. Uh, we listen to a different voice. We belong to a different kingdom. And when I was growing up, like it was, it was like the way this got expressed is you don't watch certain movies, you don't listen to certain music, like burn your tapes for Jesus, and you, know, you wear a certain kind of clothes. That's not what Peter's talking about at all. He's not talking about some legalistic checklist. He's simply saying, man, you value different things. Christian, you believe different things. Your understanding of right, wrong, and truth is different because your home isn't here. For instance, like when I will visit New York, uh, I, I like to go to Chinatown or, or, or Little Italy, places like that, mostly for the food, right? Uh, but if you ever go to places like that, what you, what you learn is you have a people living in a culture according to the customs of their homeland. They are living in a culture, but they're living with the customs, the behaviors, the ideas of their homeland. That's what Peter is reminding these Christians of. Yes, we live in this world, but our identity is not this world. And it rubs it creates tension at times, doesn't it? I mean, is this not where we are even in our own culture today in America? Like, we believe that God has spoken about marriage. We believe that God has spoken about sexuality. We believe that God has spoken about gender. We believe that God has spoken about truth. We believe that God has spoken about money. I could keep going on and on. Christians, like, I want to fire you up today to understand, don't blend into the culture, stand out from the culture, and declare, this is not my home. I am of a different kingdom. My identity is exile. My identity is stranger. My identity is not of this world, though I will love this world for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's who he's called you to be. Now, why would Peter say this? Why would he remind them of this identity, remind them of their home? Two quick reasons. Number one is expectation, and this is big. Man, this is a word for the church today in our culture. You've got to reset your expectations. That is, if you take seriously that you don't belong here, this is not your ultimate identity, your ultimate citizenship, then you're going to start expecting some things in life. 
Look over at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3. Watch what Peter says. It's about their expectations. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Right here, faith family, Peter is saying, don't be surprised when the world is surprised that you don't think like they think and you don't live the way they live. You should expect there's going to be some tension. There's going to be a rub. There's going to be persecution right here. Because when you are peculiar, there is always some level of persecution. When you are peculiar, there is always some level of persecution. You've got to reset your expectations. If you're really going to accept your identity in this world, you're going to receive some tension, persecution, and trials as a result of this world. Number two is not just expectations, uh, but evaluation. In other words, this is going to begin to test you as to what you really value. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 7. You'll see this language. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, what you're going through, the trials that you're experiencing, the tension of this life, listen, is going to reveal what you really want. Do you want the kingdom of man or do you want the kingdom of God? Do you want to follow Christ or do you want to follow the world? Trials have a way of being a test as to determine whose home you really belong to, where your identity really lies. And so he's trying to give these Christians perspective as to who they are by reminding them of their home. But number two... He doesn't just remind them of their home. He secondly reminds them of their hope. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Underline this. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. Right here, Faith Family, Lakeville, Venue, everybody. Um, when you're going through trials and when you're going through difficulty and when it just feels like you're in darkness, it's not only easy as a Christian to forget your home, it's also easy to lose your hope. Anybody lost your hope this morning? Anybody struggling with hope? Hope is simply what you believe about the future. If you don't see any way out for your marriage, you'll see your marriage is hopeless. If you don't see any way out of your financial mess, you'll see your financial situation as hopeless. And listen to me this morning. Hope is essential for survival. Hope is essential for survival. 
Uh, for instance, it, uh, leading up around World War II, there were three very famous uh, Jewish psychiatrists. Uh, the first was a man by the name of Sigmund Freud. You've likely heard that name. Freud argued that the basic need that human beings had, what, what would give them drive in life and meaning in life, was a sense of pleasure. If you could just experience pleasure, then you'd have a sense of meaning and purpose. Uh, then along came Alfred Adler. Alfred Adler said, no, 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 it's not pleasure. It, it, it's power. It's control. People need a feeling of significance in their life like they matter. And then along came Viktor Frankl. Frankl, unlike the other two, did not escape before Hitler invaded, which means that Frankl went through the concentration camps and he survived. And after it was over, he returned to his career and he started thinking about what his colleagues had, had described as what human beings need in order to survive, what their basic need really is. And what he said was, in reflecting on those who had survived the Holocaust, survived the concentration camps, he said this, people survived not because they were physically strong, not because they had experienced pleasure, far from it. Not because they had any power or felt any sense of significance. Listen, he said they survived because they never stopped believing in their future. They lived not based on what is the next move. They lived based on a guaranteed outcome. They believed that they had a future for them. And that's what allowed them to survive. This is what Peter is saying. He describes the Christian future, and look at how he describes it. He says, you have an inheritance, and this inheritance is living. It's alive. That is, Christians have a hope that can't be killed. And do you know why our hope can't be killed? Because our hope was already killed. They killed our hope. 2,000 years ago. And guess what? Our hope walked out of the grave. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive, and therefore there is nothing, not even death, that can take our hope away. If you don't get excited, I'm going to get excited for you. All right? Our hope is alive. It's living. But look how else he describes it. He says it's imperishable. That is, it, it won't decay it's undefiled, that is, it's pure, it's not stained with sin. It's unfading, that is, it's eternal. So it's not here one day and gone the next, but it lasts forever. And then he says, it's kept in heaven. Now, I'd like to drop about a 30-minute footnote right here, all right, but I can't. Listen to this. I talk to so, I hear Christians, can I correct some bad theology can I, get, can I just go off for just a moment? I'm going to anyways, all right? I hear Christians all the time talking like that your future hope is heaven. Your future hope is not heaven. Your future hope is who is in heaven. Our inheritance is not heaven. It's kept in heaven for us. Dear friend, I don't care if heaven has streets of gold or streets of sawdust. I don't care if it's got pearly gates or barbed wire fences because what makes heaven heaven is Jesus. 
He's our hope, and He's in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of the Father, and that's why our hope is eternal, unfading, will not perish, and alive and well. This is the hope that Christians have. What is that hope more specifically? What's well, not just Jesus, although it is, but it's framed by Peter as salvation. That is, our relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a what? Salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jump down to verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In other words, everybody right here, Lakeville venue, what Peter is saying is when the skies grow dark, when the storm clouds of life come in, when the trials are raging out of control, when it feels like all hell is breaking loose, Christians have something nobody else has. They have the salvation of God. Nobody? Like, okay, I get it. I'd rather have the benefit program at Best Buy or whatever. Like, are you serious? Like, no matter what, Christians have something nobody else has. They have a story. They have a narrative. That narrative, that story is a salvation story. And it has everything to do with your past, your present, and your future. Another little 30-minute footnote here. Peter describes the whole story that is your salvation. He goes all the way back to election. He calls them elect exiles. That is, we are chosen by God. We're not only chosen by God. He then mentions you're born again or regeneration. You're born of God. You have new life. You're a new creation. You're part of a new kingdom. And then number three, big word, sanctification. Verse two, the sanctification of the spirit in obedience to Jesus Christ. You are chosen by God. You're born of God. You're becoming more and more like God with highs and lows and ups and downs. And one day a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, you will be fully restored by God. That's your story. That's your story. Chosen by God, born of God, becoming like God, and one day fully restored in God. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Brother, you don't need, sister, you don't need next move. You need perspective. And I'm not trying to minimize how you're going to get through tomorrow or how you're going to get through next week. I'm just saying, if you'll live with final outcome in view, if you'll live with the narrative of your life in full view, it will put your now in perspective. It will put whatever you're going through in perspective. This is our story. It is the hope of salvation. Peter then says this hope of salvation is what gives us hope in suffering. We'll talk more about suffering in future weeks as he'll pick the topic back up. But look at verse 6. In this, well, what's the this? It's the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Okay, again, I hope this... This kind of metaphor is helping you uh, resonate with these truths. What he's saying is, in this, that is the final outcome, 
that has been guaranteed in Jesus, in that you rejoice if even now for a little while you have to endure trials. It's even if tomorrow looks impossible, the glory of your future gives you something to rejoice in. Do you see what he's saying? Like, the problem is, we're just consumed with next move rather than frequently. By the way, this is why you need to come to church a lot. Shameless plug, right? Be, why? Because almost all week long, you're being bombarded with next move, next move, next move, next move. You need to come to some place that reminds you of glory, that reminds you of eternity, that gets your eyes off the world and puts it where it belongs, which is all of God's blessings in Christ. This is what gets you through suffering. Let me give you an example of this. The Apostle Paul is a perfect example of what Peter is talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, here's what he says. We do not lose heart. I think you could put there, we don't lose hope. We're not defeated. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And many of you know this verse. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, right? Do you see how Paul is doing what Peter is teaching? He's letting glory overshadow tomorrow or today or what we're dealing with right now. Uh, now, what was this affliction that Paul was dealing with here in 2 Corinthians? Did somebody say a mean word to him and hurt his feelings? Did he have a bad hair day? Did he run out of gas like Pastor Terry did yesterday? Is, uh, is he, you know, did he get fired from his job? I mean, I mean, Clearly, it's probably he hangnail, bad hair day. For it to be light affliction, it's probably not that significant. Well, the good news is in just a couple of chapters, he tells you what that light affliction is. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked. A night and day adrift at sea on frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers, in toil and hardship, many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure, must have been in Minnesota, and a part of other things, there he is, he understands what it's like to be a pastor, the daily pressures on me of my anxiety of all the churches. That's what's light and momentary. Brother, sister, that's not light and momentary to me. I understand the pastor part, but I haven't been beaten with rods lately. I've not been shipwrecked lately. I've not had people threaten my life lately. Like, we might not be to that level of persecution as Christians, but Paul is able to say all of those things, oh, preach, preacher, is light and momentary in light of the glory that will be given to me on that final day. It is only light and momentary in light of the glory of God. And the assurance of hope that I have in Jesus Christ. Some of you today, you don't need a plan. You need perspective. 
You don't need to figure out next move, as important as that is. I'm not minimizing how you're going to get through tomorrow. I'm not minimizing how you're going to pay those bills. I'm not minimizing how you're going to find that job. No, 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 no. I'm just simply saying this right here, Lakeville Venue, right here. I'm simply saying that what makes Christians peculiar is in the midst of all that, they never lose, lose sight of what's coming. They never lose sight of the end, of the final outcome that is their hope in Jesus Christ. Never base your hope on the present you are in, but on the future that you have. Never base your hope on the future that you're in, but on, on, the, on, the, on the present that you're in, but on the future that you have. One more. We have the hope of salvation. We see that in the text. In that we rejoice. So in our salvation story, in the hope that we have, we rejoice even when we face trials and suffering. And then lastly is that gives us hope even in the midst of silence. It gives us hope even in silence. Let me show you it in the text and then we'll wrap up. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, now watch this, searched and inquired carefully. Now look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that are now being announced to you through those who preach the good, the, the, to preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now this is kind of weird. Like Why does Peter mention prophets and angels. Now the point of those verses simply put is this. When God was revealing this salvation story, his his big redemptive plan, guess what? Uh, there were some prophets that didn't understand what God was doing. And oh by the way, there were some angels that looked carefully to try to understand this thing called redemption. What's he getting at? Are you beginning to see? Have any of you ever gone through trials or difficulties in life and you ask the question, God, what are you doing? This doesn't seem to make any sense at all. I don't understand what you're doing. What's Peter saying? If you've ever been through a situation where you didn't understand what God is doing, you're in really good company because guess what? The prophets didn't either. Daniel had no clue. Jeremiah didn't fully understand. Isaiah wasn't sure how all this fit together. Even angels were peeping in trying to figure this thing out. You see, it is the common experience for all of us to wonder what is God doing in the midst of silence. When we can't understand him, when we can't hear him, and I would even put Peter in this category. We studied him a few weeks ago. Peter crumbles in the face of crisis because he doesn't understand what Jesus is up to. How can the Messiah be arrested? But what did Peter learn? Oh, 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 those moments when you think life is out of control, that's when God is absolutely in control. Those moments... When God doesn't make sense at all, that's when you can be assured that He is at work. Peter is encouraging these Christians when they don't understand what's going on by reminding them that neither did the prophets or angels. 
fully understand what God was doing. And the truth is, faith family, can I just tell you this? Even if God told us, our brains wouldn't understand it. Because his thoughts are not our thoughts, which means this. Jot this down. It means our hope in silence is not based on God's explanation. It is based on God's revelation. Now that'll preach. Our hope, when you can't hear God, you don't understand, you feel like you're in this time of silence, it's not based on God's explanation. It's based on God's revelation. You know what He has promised you. You know what your outcome's going to be. And so when you're stuck in this next move and it's silent and you're confused and you don't understand, what gives you hope in the silence? The certainty of salvation that will be revealed to you at the last time. I close with this. I was at a conference once, and I, I heard um, popular preacher Tony Evans tell a story about uh, him landing in New York City at LaGuardia Airport during the blackout of 2003. And um, he had to wait for several hours to try to get his luggage, and finally they shut down the airport and told him that he was going to have to go. And he calls up his travel agent, and his travel agent's able to find one last available hotel room at the Crown Plaza. And he said, you got to get there in 10 minutes before they give it away. And so he, as fast as he can, gets over there, uh, walks into the lobby. It's candlelit because all the power's off. They give him a flashlight for him to make his way to his room. He walks in the room. It's hot. It's August. There's no air conditioning. So he goes to the window to try to open up the window to get a breeze, and he pulls back the curtain and he notices something strange. He notices that right across the street is a Marriott that's fully lit. <laughs> that's odd. Talk about a terrible travel agent. Why, why am I in this hotel? And so he was curious as to why that was the case. He goes back down to the lobby. He crosses the street. He's walking over to the Marriott. As he gets closer, he starts hearing music. He starts hearing people laughing and talking. He walks in the front door and he feels that, 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 that cold rush of wind from air conditioning. And he walks up to the manager and he says, I've got to ask you something. Why is it that everybody else around here is in darkness and yet your hotel is lit up. The manager said, it's interesting you ask that because people have been asking us that all day long. He said, the answer, the answer is very simple. When we built this hotel, we built it with a gas generator, which means that we have a power source on the inside that isn't impacted by the outside. We have a power source on the inside that is not impacted by whatever's happening on the outside. Faith family, I declare to you, we will see dark days socially and you will see dark days personally. But we are a peculiar people with a peculiar hope. We have something on the inside that is not impacted or controlled by what's happening on the outside. And because of that, we don't live day by day. We do not live move by move. 
No, 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 no. We live with the certainty of an outcome because our king came into this world and on a Friday he declared check and on Sunday he declared checkmate. Game over. Victory has been guaranteed. Our future has been sealed. And that's why Peter can tell Christians who are suffering, you live in the full assurance that is the outcome of your faith. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful word to us this morning. Oh, the peculiar hope that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. There are some here today, they don't have that hope because they've never, uh, they've never trusted Christ as their personal Savior. They've never turned from their sin and simply said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender. I surrender. There are others in this room, others that have lost the hope. They've, they've become so consumed in the next move that they've lost sight of final outcome. They've lost sight of glory. They've lost sight of the assurance of their salvation. Oh, that today you would renew us and restore us in the hope of the gospel. The hope that is imperishable, unfading, and alive. Renew that in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.